This is Grant Oliphant, and welcome to Stronger Than This, a special podcast series of candid COVID-19 conversations. This is not our regular We Can Be season. Stay tuned for that later this year. The Stronger Than This series is recorded remotely with a quick turnaround time from recording to release and with minimal editing. These episodes give a unique unvarnished opportunity for deeper insights into the current crisis. You'll hear from those on the front lines as they share firsthand experiences, challenges, victories, and what they see for the long road ahead. Today, we're going to be speaking with someone who I have admired for a long time, who has been focused on medicine and science and the role of thinking through problem solving in our society. With the world's hopes of beating COVID-19 resting on the widespread availability and use of an effective vaccine, there is no better time than now to talk to today's guest, Dr. Todd Wallin. Dr. Wallin is co-founder of Shots Heard Around the World, a nonprofit that defends, supports, and empowers vaccine advocates worldwide. He is CEO and president of Kids Plus Pediatrics, a 2016 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. And for the past nine years, he has been named one of America's top doctors by U.S. News & World Report. Todd gained national renown in 2017 when he posted a video on social media urging parents to vaccinate their children against the human papillomavirus, which prevents cervical cancer. That post resulted in an aggressive and organized online attack from anti-vaccination activists from around the world. He is an in-demand expert who speaks around the country on health issues related to children and their families, has been featured in the LA Times, The Guardian, Time Magazine, and The New York Times. He is also just a fierce advocate for truth, for good medicine, and for science at a time when it is under attack. So we'll be talking about all of that today. Todd, welcome. Thank you very much. I am thrilled to be here. You run a leading pediatric practice um, during a time that is exceptionally difficult for medicine. I'm curious, as you think about what's happening with COVID-19, what are you telling parents of the kids you see about how they should approach this risk as the country begins to reopen? First and foremost, we tell people that we are going to present them with the evidence-based information, best practices, and where the science is, because we need some magnetic north or some truth to follow here, and facts should guide us. The current information tells us the greatest risk for spread for this disease is large droplet close contact, which is why physical distancing and mask wearing are really very effective. The notion that this is on surfaces or vectors that you can touch and then transmit to people or that they're suspended in small particles in the air for hours, while theoretically possible, don't seem to be the main spread. Mm. So actually really simple, common sense, mask wearing, physical distancing, at least six feet apart, good hand washing or hand sanitizing are, are the mainstay. We know that that's hard for families, though, because that means they have to be apart from friends and family. Do you encounter people, as you speak about this, who are viewing it through a political lens and say to you, I don't want to wear a mask. You can't convince me that I need to. Interestingly, in our practice, I would say we haven't seen too much of that. People have actually been expressing a significant amount of concern of contracting the illness. And because we're a medical practice, I think that probably brings an added layer of angst. Is there a risk there? 
though I can tell you some friends and family <laughs> I have talked to that that are wearing very strong political hats. And sad to say, this whole politicis, politicization, how do you say it? Uh, politicization. Yeah. Politicization, <laughs> let's call it that, of mask wearing. Like that just reflects the insanity that we've reached in this country, where wearing something that is evidence-based to protect you from an illness has now been somehow associated with a political value. I think what's especially sad about it is that the masks we're being asked to wear aren't about being scared and protecting yourself. They're actually about being considerate and protective of others. In a recent tweet, you said that COVID-19 reminds us of what a country can be without vaccines. Tell us a little bit about what you meant by that. Sadly, what COVID-19 is literally representing for families and for people across the world is what a world looks like without herd immunity. So we take herd immunity for granted, and we do so because everybody around you, and when we say everybody, we're talking greater than 90 to 95%, so let's be more specific, have received vaccines. And when we look at children, particularly because of school entry, require vaccines against some pretty bad diseases. So we look at polio. People used to line up around the blocks in the 50s to get that vaccine because if your child contracted it, there's a good chance that they could be permanently paralyzed or die. With that kind of fear, people were driven to get vaccines. But now in 2020, we don't see polio. We don't see homophilus influenza B, pertussis, measles and mumps the way we used to, but we are seeing reemergence of measles because of things like the anti-vaccine movement and erosion of confidence in vaccines. But what COVID-19 does is show you when nobody has immunity to a disease, it cripples governments, it cripples countries, it shuts down economies, it certainly reveals disparities that already exist. And so you have reasonably a lot of people fearful of getting this infection uh, with what's ranging of uh, mortality of somewhere around 1%. I mean, we still don't have good data on that yet either. Right. Well, I think this is one of the extraordinary aspects of this phenomenon that we're learning some very difficult lessons about things we've taken for granted in real time. I think nowhere is that more evident than in the area of vaccines. So I'm really glad that that's an aspect of this that you're focusing on. And one would think, and I think everybody thought across science and medicine, well, as sad as this is, this really will drive the point home that look how much we need vaccines for serious diseases. But in the flash of that thought, we see the pandemic being co-opted by anti-vaccine forces who do what they do best, churn conspiracy and anti-science rhetoric. And so we're we're now still fighting a two-front war, one against an infectious disease that's real and another one against parties that have congregated together around this notion of being anti-science. Why are people so susceptible to those arguments? You know, I'm thinking about the video that recently circulated. It makes me crazy, but this pandemic thing Why are people so susceptible to lies about science and vaccines in particular right now? The interesting thing in my career path is I've spent a lot of time in the past two years around social scientists, decision-making scientists, communication scientists. And so I've got a great look under the hood as to why, in fact, anti-science, conspiracy, straight-out lies seem to grab our attention. And it's because we're hardwired to be on guard for threat. Nobody cares 
honestly, if a, a message comes out and says today or you know this month or this year, a hundred million children were immunized and nobody, you know, everybody's doing great. But all you need to hear is vaccines can maim or harm or cause autism, right? We have that same mistruth, which was resolutely proved to be a conspiracy. It was actually a true conspiracy with money exchanging hands from Dr. Wakefield receiving money from lawyers back in 1998. And even today in 2020, you'll hear people still make that connection between vaccines and autism, of which there is none. The whole notion, again, for why we're so susceptible to this is, again, part of what we can I guess attribute some of our success as a species is our ability to be on guard, to continually look for threat, interpret how we can deal with it, and then deal with it. And so when there's some sense of threat, that there's a conspiracy, that big pharma is in bed with government or physicians are in bed with big pharma, then you're on, on guard. And when you look at how that works out in social media, a, a pro-science statement like this vaccine works, 100 million doses are given, nobody was harmed, a little blip on the radar, and then just diminishes within days, maybe a week. Yeah. Something that's sensational that poses threat blows up and hits tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions, and resonates for weeks to months, or as I just told you, decades, literally from one article that was proven to be complete fraud. It's so amazing. You know, I, I think back to when I was a parent of young children. You're absolutely right. We're hardwired that way. We were on red alert all the time for something that may harm my kid. It's instinctual. Uh, I have a, a chicken that weighs less than two pounds that was rearing chicks. And if I went into the yard, she would she would have literally attack me, right? We are hardwired <laughs> to just fend off any kind of threat. And so that's why these these lies and these conspiracies resonate. And we have to fight ourselves to avoid being sucked into that realm. So you have direct personal experience in this phenomenon. I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. In the fall of 2017, as the new school year was approaching, you posted a video reminding parents of the importance of having their kids be vaccinated against the papillomavirus. And in the weeks that followed, you were posting you and your practice were systematically attacked online by anti-vax folks from around the world who I think really did their best to put you out of business. Tell us a little bit about what happened and what you learned and how you responded. Sure. I'm going to preface that by saying, because I always want this to be out there, that I did clinical vaccine research for 14 years. I've done plenty of work with and continue to do work with vaccine companies on a range of things and mostly now around vaccine confidence, including both Merck and Sanofi. And at that point, I was also serving on a committee called the HPV Roundtable, and I was representing the American Academy of Pediatrics there. And the CDC in 2017 said, we have a, an amazingly safe and effective vaccine that protects against human papillomavirus, which can protect in an amazing way against cervical cancer, vulvar, vaginal, anal cancers. And what they didn't even know at that point was oral cancers. And so Knowing that and going back to my practice and our practice prides itself on our ability to excel in communication, building relationships with our community and engaging our community. And we said, you know what, let's reach out to our community using video. And we had an amazing response. We had over 15,000 uh, replies in terms of views and likes and shares. And the best part was people were calling to make their appointments and saying, you know, I want to get this for my son. I want to get this for my daughter. It wasn't until three weeks after that we started to see the attack. And as you pointed out, it was global. It was coordinated. 
It was actually from the hard right and some hard left as well. And it was one of the very first attacks that we had ever seen that used this level of sophistication to coordinate the attack. It was around the clock, over 880 different Facebook accounts attacking our Facebook page with over 10,000 posts. They also went to attack our Facebook ratings. And at that point, there were star ratings. We shut that off immediately. But you can't shut off Yelp. And as they said, hey, they can't shut off their Yelp and Google reviews. Let's go after them. And from inside the attacking Facebook group, there were moles that were sending us screenshots. So they were pro-vaccine people in that group saying, you better prepare for this. This is what's coming your way. And darn if it didn't. How did you figure out how to protect yourself, though? You know, small businesses would react to a moment like that by being completely overrun. Yeah. Paralyzed, overrun, take their posts down. By the way, the anti-vaccine community celebrates when that happens. Um, We happen to be blessed with an amazing communications director. His name is Chad Herman. He was really taking on this attack pretty single-handedly as our communications director. He was hiding. He was banning. He was deleting as quickly as he could. But to be honest with you, the, the answer to your question was, we needed help. And while he did his best to keep up with it, they were 24-7, so he would go to sleep and be thousands of posts behind by the next day. And so we've interviewed since then multiple other people that have been attacked, and they have done exactly what you said, have been shut down, have been paralyzed, have had their reputations decimated. We, on the other hand, were pretty well connected because we've been leveraging social media to address medical and health and social issues for years. And so we put out kind of a a plea for help. We sent out emails. And on the third day, kind of like when Gandalf and the Riders of Rohan come to... uh, uh, oh, I love it. I love it that we're giving a Tolkien reference. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it, it was literally that moment we saw the reinforcements arrive. And mm-hmm. so while we had to lay, carry out a, a level of professional decorum on our own page, these pro-science people didn't. So they would bring literature, citations, and sometimes explicatives, <laughs> and they would go after the people that were attacking. And when a bully gets attacked or pushed back, they usually just go on for an easier target. And that's exactly what happened here. They dissipated by day six. It was completely done. They so they, you. Well, they were also getting kind of pushed back, right? And they'd rather have an easier target that just gets overwhelmed, paralyzed, pulls down the post. And in this case, they got a real handful of really fired up pro-science people saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the literature, you know, bug off. I think what's important for people to recognize is that one of the things that science and medicine are up against right now is a global community of people who are making it their personal mission to destroy organizations and professionals who care about the facts on a personal and professional level. Well, there's several groups, but they're also using amplification, right? They're, they're leveraging. They've been on social media in a way that we hadn't. Think about it. Scientists are taught to speak in a very firm way about confidence intervals, and we can never say never, and we can never say always. Think about it. Scientists will spend 10 to 15 years from hypothesis till final product maybe comes out in a commercial fashion. With the clear recognition, we're going to have several failures because they don't hold up to the science, and we have to start again. They have seconds between their imagination and typing something up in the keyboard. What I will say is from that experience, we learned 
really how to fight back and how to teach others to fight back. And that was the impetus to the notion of the, what has now become our nonprofit that we've spun out, which is called Shots Heard Around the World. And, and that was one, let's do research on it. So we reached out to the Graduate School of Public Health within a few weeks of the attack. Two, we created a, a toolkit to teach other people on how to prepare, defend, and clean up. Three, we created a digital cavalry. So the riders for Rohan are available to anybody. And four, an awareness campaign. So we've been speaking across not only the country, but even internationally, Panama, Vienna, Dublin, and C France. I've been all over the place kind of preaching the word of what we need to do to combat this weaponized social media that the anti-vaccine movement uses. And I want to come back to the subject I raised earlier about pandemic, this video that has been making the global rounds, which has had extraordinary success in reaching people around the globe with the anti-vax message, in part, I think, because it is dressed up as a documentary and appears factual. But how do you help people understand what's wrong with that message? There have been people that have line by line gone into that I don't know what you call it, a a, a pseudo documentary pointing out line by line what what is wrong with it and why it is full of falsehoods. And what the anti-science movement typically does is they pluck pieces of science, which are true, and then they'll riff off into complete nonsense. And in pandemic, they used a lot of doctors to show some credibility. But again, these people were not experts in infectious disease. And a matter of fact, they were spouting out straight up anti-science rhetoric. One of the reasons it had its reach, it wasn't just spouting out the anti-science rhetoric, but they were using troll farms from North Macedonia and from the Philippines, literally using bots and troll farms to push this message to amplify it. And so it had millions of views before Facebook, under their new policy, took it down. But that's the point here. Science won't do that. We can't spout and push and then put money into churning out coverage of, of nonsense. But they have no limitations. And that's where the social media platforms need to come in and play a role. And you could argue maybe a couple million views too late that they stepped in, but at least they stepped in. And shots heard around the world. The goal is to provide... Uh, medical professionals and scientists with the tools to respond to these lies. Is that correct? Correct. So the social media platforms, I liken them somewhat to arsonists who are being celebrated for throwing water on the fire because they are absolutely responsible for incentivizing and allowing profits to be made very much on the point that we made before on sensationalism. It's called clickbait. So when you see that big pharma's in bed with the government and your doctor, you click on that and they made ad revenue on that. And finally, when they were called out, they said, okay, you know what? We're going to put prompts from the CDC and who, and really point people toward factual information. Well, you know, I'm going to clap for them because after they started the inferno, here they are throwing a little bit of water. What they haven't done and what shots are really is focused on is the weaponization of social media. So as you mentioned before, what the anti-vax community does is they know that they can damage or harm or crush your reputation. And in 2020, if your Yelp rating goes from five stars down to less than a star or your Google review does, they actually have power. And when we were attacked, we had thousands of these negative reviews. Yelp had what was called a vigilante protocol. If you remember the dentist that shot Cecil the lion in Africa, um, rightfully so, 
Nobody would probably say they were a big fan of the guy for luring him <laughs> off the reservation, but people attacked his dental practice on the reviews. And Yelp had made a response to that saying, you may not like a person, but if you're not a customer of their business, you can't review them. Right. Google, on the other hand, took over a year and it wasn't until we went to the Guardian and Google actually saw the Guardian post fraudulent reviews with our story. And magically, the last third of fraudulent reviews disappeared the very next day after the Guardian piece. Amazing. Well, yeah, it's actually something I think people don't understand about social media, that groups driving you to be outraged are better business for the social media platforms than scientists and doctors and people delivering good news. Because actually, outrage drives further engagement, and that's where the ad revenue comes from. They're fighting their own business incentives in the way that they've set up the model. I forget which one of those companies had a motto of don't be evil. but That was um, Google. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little bit evil. Yeah, a little, <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so, so they're coming around because of public pressure, mainly driven not so much by the pandemic, but we saw over 80,000 cases of measles in Europe and over 1,000 cases in the U.S. the year before when we started saying, look, you are allowing the this disinformation to be perpetuated. The disinformation also, by the way, comes from some ungrounded people, right? There's people that believe the earth is flat and that TV broadcasts are controlling your minds. Okay. That's sad that there are people that are really struggling with just basic science and facts. But what's worse is there are people with ulterior motives. And that's what we don't hear about people that are pushing disinformation for profit, for political gain, Right. Or for power. Right. And polarizing. So there's hate groups that are polarizing people and saying immigrants are dirty and they carry diseases right. or government shouldn't be in your business. You know, vote for me and they'll, they'll take a hard libertarian edge or you'll have people profiting and they'll play up the hard left side and say there's toxins and there's poisons. But buy my essential oils or right. my crystals yeah. right. and they don't have to tell you how many millions or hundreds of thousands they make. If I do any work for a a pharmaceutical company, it's disclosed. You can look it up online, but they don't have to list their ulterior motives. So it's such an important piece of information. So you have said on this score that it's no longer enough simply to be smart about science. You also need to be a good communicator. And now as I think about that in the context of the pandemic that we're still in the middle of, no matter how we may be feeling about it at the moment, And it is clear that so much hinges in the global fight against this pandemic on an effective vaccine that is widely distributed and used. I'm wondering what challenges, given all of this context, what challenges you see in our country to the adoption of this vaccine and what will things look like at this point next year if a substantial swath of the population chooses not to take the vaccine, which I've seen statistics that as many as half of Americans would refuse to take a vaccine. It varies. I've seen 25 to 50%. Here's the deal. There's over 100 vaccine candidates currently under study. The problem is that right now in the United States, we have the unfortunate situation that we have political leadership that choose to push conspiracy to disrespect science, to actually water down some of the scientific agencies that we have in our own country, right? So we have the CDC and the FDA at the same conference as the president, 
And he, he opposes their views. Sometimes he's been seen straight out just confronting them. We've seen those agencies sometimes water down their recommendations or some of the statements that they've made. And so it becomes very difficult when you would imagine, and I would say under both Republican and, and Democratic executive branches, I, I can't tell you in my memory where I've seen doctors and scientists being pushed around like political pawns and having their messages changed. This is one of the things that is hardest for me to wrap my head around. You know, I'm, I'm remembering that moment where the president at a press conference was asked about COVID and dismissed it. I mean, he did that multiple times, but in one case talked about there being 15 cases soon to go to zero. And here we are more than 100,000 deaths later. I'm curious, why would anybody make a calculation that it's better for them politically to ignore this and let people die than to address the science? Why is the science so weak as a compelling force in this discussion? Again, I think some of it is amplified using really evil communication tools, whether they're in popular media or social media, to really aim at a very specific target, which is the base of supporters that revel in, that's our guy, don't listen to anybody else. Mm. That's the truth. You can't listen to anybody. I would say that when you look at people in the middle and you poll them, they're very frightened of the virus. They do believe in wearing masks. They are interested in a vaccine. But this is like a wrestling match or some kind of brawl that's being televised right now. It makes for great chatter and fodder and and sensationalism. But if you pull America, just like on gun issues or any other issues, when you look at where the bulk of people are, they're pretty reasonably situated and just want what's right for hopefully themselves and their families and their communities. But that doesn't make good TV. It really is about the entertainment factor in some ways. Assuming we get a vaccine and we get one in the near future, what will you be saying to parents who may be concerned about vaccines or may be hearing all of this rhetoric on TV? Who knows where we'll be then? But how will you help parents understand the COVID vaccine? If, again, this vaccine goes through the testing and gets the results that we would expect through the standard methodologies that have already been there, looking for both safety and efficacy, meaning it is safe, it won't harm you, and it's effective, it'll protect you against the virus, then we will approach it like we do with all vaccines. We'll educate our families on why we have the vaccine, what the risks and benefits are, just like we do with any other vaccine. But we also have empathy and compassion, and if they have reservations, we're there to discuss it. The anti-vaccine movement would like to say, oh, they don't listen to your questions. They don't take you seriously. Nothing could be further from the truth. One of the things that really is a solution to some of the mess that we see right now goes back to communication, relationship building, and communities. And let me, one thing we haven't said this whole podcast is that when you look across the United States and even the world's population, 75% of people are still characterized as vaccine accepting. If you make a recommendation, they will follow through. They believe in vaccines. 23% are hesitant. They are okay to have questions. And it's only one to 2% that are truly anti-vaccine. So the key here is when you come across a family that's hesitant about vaccines, but they're in your office, they already trust you. That's a great time to listen to them to validate their concerns and understand what they're saying. And then having formed a relationship, 
leveraging that relationship and trust and saying, can I share some information with you? I love the fact that you are an advocate for better global social media communications and online communications, but you're also talking about the importance of the old-fashioned way of connecting and listening and communicating with each other. And I think we need both. That's a powerful message for you to share. What are you telling parents about the susceptibility of their kids right now to multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which has been connected with COVID-19? And how worried should they be? Because I'm sure there are folks who will be listening to this who are curious about that. And this is the syndrome that they've likened to Kawasaki disease. It's a, it's an inflammatory response. The problem is there are very few cases. I mean, maybe a couple hundred across the U.S. There possibly could be more that obviously we haven't yet heard about. But it's such a small number, and there's so little information that we don't yet have much to say. What we can say is it's pretty rare given the number of people that this virus is likely infected or at least been exposed to. And... This is not going to be a hit or miss. Like, I don't know, Johnny looks like he has a little bit of fever. I mean, these kids are going to look really sick. So this is not the kind of syndrome that's going to be missed. And if a child looks sick, if a family has concerns, they should call their healthcare provider. We try and stick to the facts. We try and not be alarmist and give what information we can, but not be afraid to say we don't know that yet. We scheduled this interview before the George Floyd killing and the protests that have erupted since. Yep. As you reflect on the dynamics of race around the subjects we've been discussing obviously there have been disproportionate rates of impact of COVID-19 on the black community. We also, I think, need to see racism as a public health dynamic. I'm just curious about how you are experiencing this in your practice and, and how you talk to folks about it. What I wish, Grant, is that I wasn't talking to you at all about anti-vaccine efforts, because what our practice has been working on for over a couple of years is absolutely addressing disparities, racial disparities, social determinants of health. We have really been working hard to dig into this, to address things like housing and food insecurity, literacy. I mean, we have resources that we brought to bear in all those areas and we continue to do so. But the problem is we always feel like we're being drawn off to deal with things that aren't aren't necessary to deal with. This is a disease that kills. This is a disease that we all want to get a safe and effective vaccine for. And rather than being unified as a nation in trying to all move in that direction, you have opportunists who are using this crisis to leverage things for their own benefit. And the people that suffer most are, like you said, those that have the most disparity, whether they're minorities and people that are just poverty stricken are already struggling. This is only making things worse. And then add on top of that, that we're now having to use some resources, precious resources to fight anti-science factions. And it just takes away further from the people that need help the most. Do you see uh, a disproportionate impact of the anti-science and anti-vax rhetoric on the populations that you're serving? The biggest groups that have been affected typically are groups that are on hard right, but we see some on the hard left. We see a lot of times that this is not people in those lower socioeconomic status. But what's most interesting is that now we've seen over the past year and a half the emergence of anti-vaccine targeted victims in those groups. So Mm -hmm. the Somali population in Minnesota 
was absolutely targeted by the anti-vaccine group. Ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York, absolutely targeted. So these are small factions where they already have a sense of kind of tribalism and we're not so comfortable with the outside world and playing up their fears of what the outside world's trying to do to them with vaccines. The last group that was very interesting because African-American populations usually have a pretty good vaccine uptake if access has been addressed because access is an issue in some areas in this country. But in Harlem, where access wasn't necessarily an issue, there was a concerted effort to play up past issues, including like the Tuskegee fallout and saying, you know what, this vaccine and vaccines are targeting African-American communities. And this is kind of government trying to get at you again with big pharma and they're trying to do it again. And that's a new tactic that we see being played out. We haven't seen that so much in Pittsburgh. It's interesting. It raises an, uh, an important question, I think, for science as it learns how to communicate in a new and different way in the world that we find ourselves, which is that for the African-American community, the experience of their intersection with science and medicine hasn't always been positive. They have been victimized by experiments and by behaviors that are reprehensible in terms of their treatment, even at the hands of medical professionals. Yes. What does medicine need to learn from those experiences as you seek to communicate in a different way in a world where you're fighting for mind share among people who are getting disinformation from every quarter? How does science and medicine convince populations like that, that you know, this time they're for real? Again, good communication and relationships and community. So what these anti-vax groups don't have is a face-to-face, strong, bonded relationship, right? They play upon the notion of tribalism, but what they don't have is that relationship that's built up in the community. And very much so why Kids Plus is trying to model nationally how you build and leverage these face-to-face relationships we already have. So our goal isn't to reach Australia with our social media. It's really intended to reach Allegheny County and surrounding counties where our families come from. Your goal is to reach your community and do so both in your physical relationship when you see them in the office or in the community, but sandwich on top of that some layer of social media. So you can talk about COVID. You can talk about racial injustice. You can talk about whatever you want in a way and in a time that they can get in a quick fashion and be able to interact and, and respond with you. Before we wrap up, I want to ask if there's anything you want to add that you wish we had spoken about. I think that people don't realize the harm that misinformation and disinformation can bring about. And I never thought when I went to medical school that I would be fighting hostile foreign nations or anti-science social media troll farms and bots. But In 2020, it's no longer okay to just be smart about the science. We need to be smart about the communication. And we believe that that's all relationship-based and it needs to really be improved in, in the healthcare system. I think what this interview has pointed to is that in the middle of a pandemic, we're being reminded about the importance of science and medicine and vaccines in protecting our children and our families and the economy. Uh, All of these things that we say we're fighting for depend on science and trust for us to be able to make them happen. That also requires recognizing that there are enemies and opponents of that, including at the national level globally, all the way down to folks in your own community who may want to see you fail in delivering a successful message. We all have a responsibility, one would hope, 
to try and work towards a world in which facts are recognized and where information is processed and acknowledged when it's true. There was this old saying, when I got started in my career, and I started mostly in communications, that a lie can make its way halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on. I think what you're doing is making amazing tools available to scientists and to medical professionals to recognize that truth and to counter it. Dr. Todd Wallen, I I really want to thank you for your extraordinary work, your personal emphasis on relationships and looking at issues that are really problematic disparities in our society. We're lucky to have folks like you working in this community. Thank you again, and thanks for this opportunity. 